This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Prayer. When you think about prayer, what comes to to mind? What do you think about when it's time to pray for something specific, especially when it's just you? Now, what do you think about when the prayer you're getting ready to pray is going to be publicly heard? What do you feel? What are you thinking? Are you like, man, people are going to hear the words that I say People are going to hear the direction that I go. What if I use the wrong word? What if it doesn't land? What if people are wondering if I'm rambling? I mean, it can be really hard, especially within church culture, when uh, folks who have been in church for a period of time, they can even start to evaluate you based off of what I call the pray grade. Are you praying at a certain level? So people are going, okay, that right there, that was biblical enough. Or that right there, that felt like there was power. That right there felt like it hit the mark. There's a lot of anxiety. We've had people here in this church who are like, you know, I just don't know if I really want to pray in front of people. And, and, I, and I get that. It can be really hard because you don't necessarily know uh, if what you're communicating is clear. You don't know if people are hearing what you intended. You don't know if you're going to stumble over. And so we can have any number of fears. We can have any number of motivations. And I would just admit this. Jesus is going to show us here something about what should be true about our heart and what we should be yearning for when we pray, whether privately or whether publicly. But praying in public carries some additional challenges. There's a story that's told of a pastor who had just completed preaching on one Sunday morning. And at the end of the service, there were congregants that were coming up, shaking his hand, congratulating, saying, hey, thanks. Great service. Great sermon. It hit me. Whatever. And then one person came up to him and said, I really appreciated both of the sermons today. And the pastor said, well, I only preached one. And the congregant said, no, I I appreciated the one you preached and I appreciated the one that you prayed. And what I mean by that and what he was getting at is many times when people are preaching and people preach a sermon, preachers like myself, we can fall into this. At the end of the sermon, you find yourself almost preaching a, a, a mini sermonette. You almost pray a sermonette again. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. You're worried because everything that you said has been public and what you're getting ready to pray is going to be public. And you're going, well, what if they didn't hear the way I meant for it to be communicated? What if what I, what, what if what I encoded is not properly decoded? Right? What if I didn't communicate what was necessary? And so you go back through and there's nothing wrong with that. You almost summarize the things that you pointed out about God's heart when you're praying. There are some times when prayer in public is really necessary. There are some times when, many times, when praying in public can be really helpful. But not every prayer is meant to be overheard. If you've ever been to a restaurant where there's someone who is ready to almost, like I would, maybe I'm being cynical, but love to show off just how good they can pray, how well they can pray. You get that person that does what I might call uh, the, the, the covert evangelistic prayer 
where they, they've got the one with the booming mellifluous voice and it's their time to pray. And so you're in the middle of a longhorn and they have to pray really loud with King James words, with the hope that somewhere in the kitchen, way in the back on the, uh, on the stove, they're going to get saved because they heard the gospel prayed by this barrel chested voice in the corner of the restaurant. And it, I, I've yet to meet the person that's like, listen, I was, I was, I was frying up some potatoes and I heard the gospel being prayed forth from the person who ordered the sushi. It just doesn't normally work that way, but I think that sometimes our motivations, while some of it can be good, our motivations can be mixed with something else. We're praying for results, or we're praying so that people will know that we're holy, or people will know that we're godly, and people will know that we are with God. Not every prayer is meant to be overheard. There's a reason why Jesus said to avoid He told this to the religious leaders, avoid praying in public, right? He even said, don't pray as the hypocrites do. Don't pray out loud so that your prayers will be heard. And the the implication is that you don't pray because, uh, because of these other selfish motives. What your heart's desire is matters when you pray, even more than the words you use. Your heart's desire, your heart being in line with what God is desiring, that matters more even than the words you use when you pray. This prayer that we're going to look at now, that Jesus prays in our text today, this is very much one that I believe was meant to be overheard. It was meant to be heard by the audience that was around him, and it was meant to be heard because it was prayed for the right reasons, with the right motivations. It's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's this conclusion to this upper room discussion that Jesus has been having, this discourse for the last several chapters with his disciples. This is a time that he's getting ready to depart. And we've been talking about this. He's getting ready to leave. He's been, giving all, he's been given all of his parting advice and parting counsel and parting charges and giving them some sobering ideas, sobering thoughts about what's going to come, some sobering prophecies about what's going to happen, showing real concern for his disciples and what it's going to look like when he departs. So there he is praying. Remember, right after all of the stuff we talked about last week, right after uh, he's done kind of telling them, this is why I've spoken these things to you. This is why I want you to have joy in the midst of the coming onslaught. This is the reason why I want you to still fight for joy. You're going to have suffering, but I've conquered the world. And then he jumps into this prayer out loud in front of all of his disciples. By the way, this is the longest of Jesus's recorded prayers. This is longer even than the Lord's prayer that he gives us uh, to use as a template, as a motto for the way we should pray. This is the longest prayer uh, that, that we have recorded in scripture. It was intended to be heard by the disciples. Why? He tells them to bring them comfort, to bring them hope, to, to, to give them some, something to hold on to in the midst of their very concerned and troubled hearts. The point of this prayer is to call their attention and our attention to his ultimate desire for unity, to show this unity, to show his unity with uh, the Father, to call his immediate disciples into unity with each other, that same unity, and then to call all believers that would eventually come thereafter into that same unity. What we see here is Jesus praying for unity today, for unity tomorrow, for unity forever. So let's read John 
17. We're going to read all uh, 26 verses and listen to this prayer, the way that Jesus separates certain portions of this prayer. But listen to this recurring theme that comes up. I want us to really get this because he's showing us really what we should be yearning for when we pray. Beyond the subjective things that are important, beyond the things that we desire, that we hope for, that we need, there has to be this undercurrent of real desire for what God desires whenever we pray. Here's the word of the Lord. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given is from you because I've given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you've given me. I guarded them and no, not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me, through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. This passage, this prayer is very, very to the point. If you really look at how many times the word one comes up, Jesus is really putting a huge focus on this idea of oneness, right? This idea of unity. This, out of all the things that are getting ready to befall him and his followers eventually, out of all the things that he's staring right down the barrel at, all the thoughts that would be popping in our heads knowing he knows he's getting ready to be betrayed, He knows he's getting ready to have a complete kangaroo court of a case. He knows that he's going to be unjustly convicted and eventually unjustly crucified. He knows all these things. He knows it's going to create incredible anguish for his followers. He knows it's going to create fear and create danger. And yet he spends his time praying, not even for himself or even for him to be rescued in that moment. He's praying specifically for the unity of the body, the local disciples and the believers that are coming. So think about the first five verses here. Jesus spends time praying for himself. Look at the language he uses. He spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. There's this unique relationship. Jesus has always been trying to show that this was never just about him. He's always been trying to show for us as men and women to understand Jesus, the man giving us this picture of what it means to always be about God's business, to never just take our own agenda, sprinkle God into it, and then act as if that's God's agenda. Jesus has always been showing us that his will is united with the father's will. Anything he does is in union with what the father does. And he's showing us and teaching us that's what it means to really be in God. And so when he says, uh, I I want the, uh, 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 he said, since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. This is a very, very exclusive statement. Jesus has made several already. As much as we say that we love Jesus. To love Jesus is to love truth. And what the truth says is that there is no real eternal life. Whatever that eternal abundance of life with God means, there is none of that without understanding who God is and understanding who Jesus is. It is impossible to know God without knowing Jesus, because the glory that is the glory of the Father is shown and displayed in the glory of the Son because they are united, they are one. So Jesus asserts his own unity, his own union with the Father first. I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What does it mean to be one with God? To be about God's business to be about God's business, not our business first, God's business first. And Jesus is showing, I've done exactly what you called me to do. I've done exactly what it means to be obedient to the Father. My role has been fulfilled. I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you, before the world existed. This language with, that's union language. If we're doing something together, if I'm doing something with you, we are united in the endeavor that we're actually focusing on. 
So, so Jesus starts out by just pointing out number one and get it. He's praying and he wants all the disciples to hear much like a sermon. You've heard everything that I've said. I don't know how clear it is. So in my prayer, I'm going to recapitulate everything I just prayed. I'll probably do it on this sermon. This is what Jesus is doing. And so he's, he, they're all just watching him. Maybe their eyes are closed, heads bowed. Who knows? And while he's praying, he's almost like, Lord, please let them know that I'm united with you. They're getting ready to see some really hard things. They're getting ready to wonder about their faith. They're getting ready to scatter. I just told them they're going to be scattering, but no matter what they feel, I pray that on some level they realize that everything I'm doing is united with who you are. That's where Jesus is. So he prays for himself, but not in a selfish way. He prays for himself in such a way that other people's faiths will be enlarged, that other people will have something to hold on to when their eyes fail their faith, when their ears fail their faith, when everything they see and everything they hear and everything they experience tells them that there is no God united with them. This is something they're supposed to hold on to. So even in his prayer for himself, it's oriented for the good and well-being of others. That's how we should always be praying. Then you move to this next mo- movement in his prayer. So he moves from praying uh, for, uh, to, to almost show and prove and clarify and elucidate the relationship he has with the Father, the union that he has with the Father. Then he says, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know everything. They know that everything you have given is from you because I've given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. This uh, is such a, such a powerful thing because Jesus has already pointed out and, and I think he's wanting them. It's, it's interesting because yes, they believe, but we also know that they were lacking in their belief. There's an incredible grace in this. Jesus has just told them that they're going to demonstrate faithlessness. And yet as he prays, he still talks about the faith that they have. That should encourage us. Because what, what that tells us is that God is not holding us accountable for a perfect faith. God is not holding us accountable for a perfectly uh, theologically uh, sound and perfect in every single point, minor, uh, major, primary, secondary, tertiary. He's going beyond that. Jesus knows that their faith is going to be incomplete, and he still recognizes that they are faithful on some level, largely because it has nothing to do with their effort and their faith. He knows what he's going to do to perfect their faith and to perfect their standing in God's eyes incredible grace being put on display here. And then you see that when he, when he talks about uh, uh, the ways in which they have been given to him, again, there's this picture of God's sovereignty yet again that comes into play. Jesus is showing them, hey, listen, all of these disciples that are hearing me pray, I don't want you to think that you came to me just because you were that clever. I don't want you to think that you came to me just because you were so deserving. The father loved you. The Father enabled your heart to be able to know, to be able to be pricked, to be able to have an acknowledgement of your own sin, to have an acknowledgement of your need for a savior. He's showing his sovereignty here. He's showing the Father's sovereignty here. And he says, Lord, you've given me these disciples and you love them and so I love them. I love them and so you love them. Why? Because they're united. And then uh, he says that they've received 
They've received them, the words that God gave them. They've received them and have known for certain that I came for you, from you. They have believed that you sent them. And then this is what he prays. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. It's a very important distinction here. Because it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love the world. He loved the world so much he gave, he gave his life for the world, right? But we also see this very specific prayer for these disciples. He's, Lord, I realize, he's saying, Father, I realize you've given me these 12. One is gone now, but the 12 originally, you gave them to me. These 11 that are still here, you gave them to me. They're getting ready to face something major, and I'm praying for them. Now, before we finish this section, we've got to understand there are certain places in Scripture where we have to be aware. We have to ask the question, who is this talking about? About whom do, do these words apply? Now, I think this, uh, this text has a narrow focus and a broad focus. There's a very narrow focus where some of this is specifically about those 11 disciples. And we see when we look at the book of Acts, what ends up happening with a lot of these disciples and the faith that they end up displaying and what they have to hold on to gets fulfilled, right? We see them fulfilling some of these aspects of the prayer. It is very specific to them. We got to be careful sometimes where we'll look in the Bible, look for a promise to claim. And we miss that this was a very narrowly promised aspect that was specifically for these folks. And it should give us uh, confidence. It should make us have our faith grow even in that to go, wow, the things that God promises narrowly he holds to. And there are, there's a broad application that Jesus appeals to as well. But here he's talking very specifically about these disciples, these unlearned fishermen, these guys with not a whole lot of training. They barely get what they just witnessed. They don't really understand what Jesus is even talking about. They believe enough. They don't have a, a perfect faith. They don't have a perfect belief here. That's going to get corrected throughout their lives. But he says, he says this, he says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me because they're yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. We, there's no way to walk through every aspect of this prayer, but there are some things that I think we have to hold on to. There's some things we've got to highlight. When you look at what it is that Jesus is praying, what does he say? He says, protect them by your name so that they may be one as we are one. Think about this. He prays for protection. This is so interesting. He prays for protection, not just for protection's sake, there's nothing wrong with praying for protection for protection's sake. You're getting ready to go to a dangerous area. There are folks who have done ministry in areas and they pray for protection. Or, or sometimes we just pray for protection for things that are not even uh, dangerous things. Lord, give me protection as we're driving, traveling mercies. Those things aren't bad. Nothing's wrong with that. But the, it's interesting. Jesus is showing us, even in the way that we pray for things like protection, Jesus links protection, Lord, protect them so that they can be one. In other words, his prayer is still focused on this desire, God's desire for unity. Lord, keep them safe so that they can remain unified. Protect them so that they can be one. Well, what does oneness look like? We all get to define oneness how we want, right? Unity for me looks different than what unity looks like for you. Jesus disabuses us of even that way of thinking. How does he do it? Because he doesn't just say, hey, protect them by your name, by your power, by your authority. Protect them 
so that they can be one and leave it there. He says, protect them so that they can be one as we are one. So the, the way we pray again has to be, Lord, I'm praying for unity, but not uni- unity as I define it, but unity as you display it. The way that the Father and the Son display perfect unity, that's the kind of unity we need to have with each other. And we'll talk more about what does that unity look like, but that's the question. He's, this is what he brings up for the disciples. Jesus knows, I'm going to be leaving. I'm gone. They're going to be here. I'm praying that you protect them so that they are able to remain united, that there's a union that's on display. So he prays, he prays that. Protect them by your name. And then in verses 13 and 14, he says, uh, now I'm coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that, uh, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world just as I'm not of this world. What is it that he's saying here? So he's already prayed for protection, right? Connected to unity, defined by the union between the father and the son. Then he says, uh, give them joy in the midst of opposition. He's praying again. I want to see their unity. I'm praying for their unity. And I'm praying that they can actually have this unified joy in the midst of certain oppression. There's something about, again, these disciples, there's something about seeing. They they probably won't even know. They don't know how that's possible on this side of the resurrection. On the other side of the resurrection, and when the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in them for the first time, the boldness that they begin to have changes, right? They're able to go, I know the resurrected Christ. I've walked with him. I've seen him. I know that he's resurrected. I have nothing to fear. And so they're able to hold on to something, have real joy in the midst of real opposition. That joy, that shared joy is a form of unity together. When we all have joy about the same things, we're really united. Joy by itself does no good for anybody if your joy is rooted in something wrong and my joy is rooting in something right. Or even, let's make it even more clear. If your joy is rooted in something that's harmful and my joy is not, now we have a conflicting joy. So, so you see, we can't have real joy if we're not truly united in the same thing. We can't have real happiness and joy if our joy is not tethered to the joy that only comes from God. This joy in who Jesus is, this joy in what he's accomplished, this joy in what we all share in together. And so Jesus prays for that. He prays for these disciples and says, I'm praying for their protection so they can be united. I pray for their united joy in the midst of uh, opposition. And then verses 16 through 19, they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Again, there's a unity there too, right? Jesus being other than this. We are now other than this, right? We're not less than this, uh, not necessarily more than this because we still have our human nature, but there's something different. There's something other. There's a sense of having the mentality, the heart posture, the mindset that God has that we did not have before. And so now he's praying and he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. Sanctify them. So what does he pray? Let's go back. The disciples pray for their protection right? So that they can be united. Pray for their joy, united joy in the midst of real oppression and opposition. Sanctify them by the truth. Now listen, 
If you came from the type of background I came from, sanctified and sanctification might have a different definition, right? Because many times, sanctification often just meant this, this, this uh, Holy Spirit enlightenment that puts you head and shoulders above the other spiritual folks that aren't quite there yet. You could even have folks that know Jesus, love Jesus, but they haven't displayed these gifts over here, so they're not really sanctified might have this erroneous idea that if these people have not displayed or made any profession to have this particular spiritual gift, they're not sanctified. That's complete garbage, according to Jesus. That has nothing to do with what it means to be sanctified. This idea, now some come from even other uh, 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 church backgrounds where they understand sanctified, the literal meaning of it, meaning to be set apart. But even that gets confused. Because a lot of times people think that sanctification means separation, and it doesn't mean that either. Set apart, yes, there's a degree of what it means to be set apart in order to be fashioned, in order to be molded, in order to be pruned. But what we see in Jesus's life is he was not sanctified by separation. He defines sanctification as this dedication and obedience to the work and the will of the Father. So ultimately, this sanctification took him all the way to the cross of Calvary. What does it mean to truly be sanctified? It means that there is, there's a posture that I had that is having to be changed in order to align with the posture that God has. That's ultimately what sanctification is. And it happens every single day that we take breath. As long as you are alive, as long as I am alive, I am being sanctified. None of us should function as if we are the finished product. And these disciples were not gonna function like they were the finished product. Jesus cared about it so much that he prayed that it would continue. Sanctify them. Don't just separate them so they can feel a sense of uh, a religious superiority like the Pharisees had done. But sanctify them. Set them apart to be changed so that when they reintroduce into the culture, into the world, there's a different posture that they have. They stand for what you stand in. They stand for what God stands for, which means if areas of the culture are out of sync with that, they might end up standing against them. But now they've been prayed for and they'll be able to stand strong. This sanctification, this obedience to the will of the Father, this becomes hard for us. This becomes hard for the disciples at times. We're going to see times where these specific disciples wrestle with a sinful pattern of behaving, a sinful pattern of seeing their neighbor, a sinful pattern of seeing different ethnic groups, sinful patterns of ways in which they overlook the cares of their brothers and their sisters. Those things get checked. Those things get called out because that's a part of what sanctification does. And we see this, we see the work of sanctification. We see what it, where it took Jesus, the obedience to the will of the Father, this work of the Son that assures the sanctification of every saint, which takes us to the latter part, verses 20 through 26, where Jesus moves from praying for the disciples. Again, that was specifically for the disciples, uh, but then he moves on to this, uh, a prayer for all believers. And I think it kind of connects to the end of 19. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He says that about the disciples, but then he extends that, right? He extends that to this larger, broader group of people. So there is a narrow uh, application for this, but then there's a very broad one because ultimately Jesus is saying sanctification is for everybody. We need it. 
There are things that we, and he, he also says, it's not just set them apart so that they can go out and figure out and divine on their own what the right way of being is, what the right way of seeing is, what the right way of living is, what the right way of loving is. He, he doesn't leave us to do that. He says, I pray that they will be sanctified by the truth, the truth, not a truth, not my truth, not your truth, the truth. This is, this is major because we're going to see in a little bit, right? When Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate is like, what is truth? Truth then is just like truth now. It's always been relative for folks. It's always been this idea of I live my life and as my life reveals itself, my truth is this. And it's not to say that there's not subjective aspects of what truth, true living experience is for all of us, right? So lived out truth is very subjective. Your lived truth is different from mine, but the spiritual truth of who God is, that's not subjective at all, y'all. That's, that's very objective. It's very specific and it's been laid out for us. And so Jesus recognizes that our unity will be affected if we're not united in the same objective truth, which is why he says, I pray not only for these, those specific disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's, that's everybody. In other words, I'm not just praying for these disciples. I care about them and I have a very specific reason why I'm praying for them, Father. But pursuant to this sanctification by truth, I pray not only for these disciples, I pray for everybody who's going to end up believing because of their word, because of their testimony. I pray, so, so you know what that means? That means that in many times, I, I don't know about you, but for me, there have been times where you, I felt so incredibly alone. There are times where you can just feel like, I don't know if anybody even knows what I'm going through. So they don't even know how to pray for me. I don't even know if I could share what I'm going through. I don't know if I could trust anybody enough to share what I'm going through, which puts me in my own tailspin because if I can't share what I'm going through, then nobody around me can pray for what it is that I'm going through. So then what? I feel utterly alone. I feel uh, by myself. That kind of pressure can be debilitating. Sometimes it's so important to know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you. The thing that you're feeling and that you're dealing with right now, even if you've shared it and you just feel like that there aren't satisfactory responses or you're just not feeling comforted or you're wondering if people are there, or you're wondering if you're alone, whether you're married, whether you're single, divorced, widowed, whatever it is, you can easily get to that place where you believe that lie that nobody cares and nobody prays for you. Nobody's holding you up. Nobody has your back. And Jesus wanted you to know. That's why he wanted this prayer to be overheard, that he prayed for you. The very thing you feel now, the thing you're going to feel tomorrow, the thing you're going to feel five years from now, Jesus prayed for you. What did he pray? I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. What did Jesus pray? It's not that he doesn't care about these specific aspects of our lives because he does. And we're told to boldly go before the throne and petition and ask and pray and do things in his name according to his will. All those aspects of our lives, they matter. But ultimately, 
the foundation of all of those things is rooted in the desires of God's heart. And the one overarching desire that God has is for us to be united. Jesus prayed that not just that we would have healing and that we would have, he went beyond that. He prayed that no matter what it is that we go through, whether healing comes or whether hurt comes, right? Whether laughter comes or whether sorrow comes, whatever that is, out of the ashes of that or out of the joy of that, that we would find ourselves more united than we were before. Why? Because ultimately, the world knows who God is based off of our unity with each other. That's why he said before, they will know, right? They will know who God is. They will know who Jesus is. They will know of my love based on your love for one another. United, union, unity. This is what we're called to. It's, it's vital that we recognize the difference between unity and uniformity though. Because when we say unity, so often churches, and, and we're really good about this, we will take unity and turn it right into uniformity. It means that it's not just that we're all one, we're all one in expression. We're all one in exactly how we think about this minor thing or this minor thing. We're, we're all one in how we dress. So we're all one in how we, again, how we express. But unity is best demonstrated in diversity. Think about that. Unity is best demonstrated in diversity. Because if everybody looks the same and everybody thinks the same and everybody dresses the same and everybody eats the same and everybody votes the same, all those things come together. And a be, uh, when, when everybody's the exact same, there's really, that's not really unity. It's just uniformity. And what ends up happening is that uniformity, if there are people that might be diverse who come into those kinds of communities, they feel the pressure to change and acquiesce. And so it's not necessarily unity. It's not necessarily uniformity. It's conformity. And so we call them into that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. How do we know that? Look at the kinds of people Jesus chose to follow him. He chose disciples. As th these disciples were these men who were radically different in temperament. And I would say not just men, because we have some women that were following as well that also had incredible diverse backgrounds. So you've got men and women, both Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene, all these different folks that are there with very diverse backgrounds. They all are following Jesus and they're radically different in their temperament and their personality, even in their political philosophies. And it was because of their glaring differences that their unity was so evident. We can't possibly show unity if all we are is just uniform. There's no better way to show unity than to be diverse. We see that in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians when Paul is teaching that diversity is not opposed to unity, but that it's essential to it. Remember, how could the body function rightly if every member wore an eye or every member wore an ear or if every member wore a mouth, right? He said, if everybody were, were an eye, where would the hearing be? If everybody were an ear, where would the speaking be? Where would the seeing be? How could the body, uh, body function rightly if every member were just one thing? True unity demands diversity and diversity displays true unity. So unity is not to be found in uniformity, but it is to be seen in union, which is what we see in verse 23. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. 
And then you see, you see how Jesus is again tying. He's not just, sometimes we can get so caught up in our story. And listen, our stories matter. Been hurt, been betrayed. I'm suffering. I'm going through really difficult times right now. And no one is saying those things don't matter. They do. But I think what Jesus is showing us is we need to be praying the way Jesus prayed. If I'm praying for unity, that means that I'm praying that I'm united with the same truths that are true about God's heart. So the people who love God, we should be united in the same things that God is united, that the Father and the Son are united in. We need to be united. That means that we need to be united and seeing the same things about who God is. Okay, so let's make it really plain. If God says that the primary thing he's called us to, if he says, and we quote this a lot at our church, if he says, and he has, that the thing he requires of us is to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly, well, we need to be united in what justice is, don't we? Because we can't actually be united in God if we don't. We need to know and be united uh, in what mercy is because we can't be united if we don't. We need to be agreed and in union and unity about what humility is because we cannot, we do not demonstrate who God is when we don't. So anytime that we're in a position where we are at odds at what it means to actually do justice, we're not unified. That, that's the reason why. In, in 1963, uh, George Wallace can say the opposite of what Jesus said here. And say, we're not even going to talk about union and unity. We're going to say segregation today, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Why? Because G Jesus prayed against this because he knows exactly what our hearts are prone to do. We are naturally going to run away from real unity for any number of reasons. We are going to run away from unity. And Jesus is saying, I'm praying that God will indeed encourage your hearts, even break you, press on you, and, and put his spirit in you so that you will be praying the same heart, pleading the same heart that your father has, that the son has demonstrated. That's why in verse 24, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. Here, Jesus is praying for reunion. He's praying for reunion because he knows he's departing and he realizes that he wants to be unified. He is. He wants to remain unified with us. And he's promised that that will happen as we are grafted into him. But there's something about us being connected to who he is, right? There's, there's something about us holding on to what it means to be united in him, because to be united in him means we will be reunited with him. That is, he is praying for that. He's praying for us that we would find, and it's hard, because ultimately, he says earlier, when he talked about the disciples, he's protecting. He says, I protect them. I'm praying for protection, not just from the world, but from the evil one. Because there is a real spiritual attack on our unity. If you don't believe me, just get on Facebook and look at the way conversations go when you've got people who claim to love Jesus and the way that we interact with each other. 
And it, and sometimes maybe when we're having a hard time agreeing on a thing because maybe what's leading us is maybe our political predilections or our own experiences, we may have to just stop and go, Lord, where is your heart for unity? Not uniformity, not conformity, but unity. And by unity, how do we define it? Making sure that I am truly united with where your heart is. Don't be just united with what your pastor said. Don't be united with what Pastor Daryl said or what Pastor Jen said. Don't just be united with who your favorite political talking head is. How do I ensure that I'm united with the heart of God? Because I will not be reunited with him if my heart isn't with him. Because I have to ask the question, has my heart ever been with him? See, if my heart's been with him, then when it strays, sanctification brings me back. But if my heart strays from him and it never comes back, the question we have to ask ourselves, I can't do that for you. I can't determine whether or not you're truly with him or not. I can't do that. That's not even my place. I can't read your heart. And I'm thankful I can't. And I'm thankful you can't read mine. But the one thing that we know for sure is that our job, our role as Christians is to constantly be praying in such a way that says, Lord, I want to be united with your heart. So if there's, no matter what's happening in my life, I pray that on some level, the words that Paul wrote in Romans 8:23, all things work for the work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. God, I don't know what this is. And this thing I'm going through, it's not good. The Bible doesn't say all things work together and are good, but they work together for our good. What is our good? Our good is not just to ensure we get the good job, ensure we get the husband or the wife, ensure that we are free from conflict, ensure that our family relationships are great. That's not what he promised. What he did promise is that the things that happen, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, the things that happen are going to work together for our good, for those who love the Lord. What does it mean to love God? To be united in his heart, to be united, to love what he loves, hate what he hates. So those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, what's the purpose he's given us? To be united in him. That's the purpose. The world will know who he is when we are united in him. When Jesus is staring down the barrel of death, the only thing he can think about is to ensure that you, that I are united in him because he wants to be reunited with us. That is love that we can't even fathom. That goes beyond anything we would ever do. That goes beyond anything we could ever truly feel. Here Jesus is, he's like, I've done my work. I've revealed the father. I've revealed the father, father to them. And because they know who the father is now, they have a better understanding. They believe that I'm the son of the father and they believe that I'm speaking the word of the father to them. And they believe that I'm united with the father. And because they see that I'm united with him and because they believe that I'm united with him, they are now united to me. And in them being united to me, they are united to one another. But I realize there's an attack coming on that. And so I'm praying that that unity never fails. I pray that that unity is held together, not just through strong willpower, not just through their ability to remember a lot of really, really great things, but through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. This idea that so many things are constantly being ripped away from us anytime our hearts stray away. That's why in the very end in 25 and 26, he says, the world has not known you. However, I've known you and they've known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be 
in them. Jesus, his, his work revealing the Father was done. And his disciples had come to know God through his life, through his ministry. And yet, he's desiring to continue to reveal himself in them and to abide in them and to reveal himself to us and abide in us. This is the prayer Jesus wanted them to overhear. This is the prayer he wanted them to publicly be exposed to. This prayer that's occurring during real anxiety, during real stress, and yet in his anxiety and in his stress, he desired to focus on us, to focus on our unity. When you think about this prayer, remember, this is providing us with this model, this excellent model for prayer also, not just for ourselves, but to pray on behalf of another believer. It seeks the very glory of God, even at the price of personal suffering. Can you still seek out and love and care for those around you, even when you're suffering? I know that can be hard and it can be very taxing. It can be very tasking. It can be asking a lot of us at times and we've got to figure out what balance looks like. But sometimes we can get to a place where we're so broken down and, uh, and just completely torn down. We have nothing else to give that we almost tap out on continuing to love each other well. It's a struggle. We don't, know, uh, we don't know what to draw from. Well, the way that we draw is not just going, Lord, I just need something else to fill my cup right now. Lord, fill my cup. Yes, I do need you to fill my cup, but fill my cup for a desire of ongoing unity in spite of even the times where I'm dealing with some heavy stuff. Teach me what it looks like to remain united even when I'm brokenhearted. That's what Jesus prayed. And we don't know, I don't know, the precise program that God has for your life. I don't even know the program he has for my life fully. I don't, have, I don't know what he has in store for anyone else. But the one thing I'm assured of, the one thing you can be assured of, is that the fact that what we said before, God's purposes will be achieved. His glory, our good, our sanctification, our union with God, and our union with other believers. But let me leave you with this. This prayer, Jesus also shows us, this prayer carries a huge price. We ought not walk away from this prayer of Jesus without really considering the heavy toll, the heavy price that's associated with this. Every request that our Lord made on our behalf necessitated the personal sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on that cross at Calvary. Everything he prayed, actually, it wasn't just a free for all prayer. It wasn't just to throw spaghetti to the wall and see if it sticks. He knew what it took to guarantee that this prayer would be answered. You see, apart from his finished work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, these words would just be nothing more than wishful thinking. That's the best we could hope for. It's just, I really hope that works out. But the price that Jesus paid for men and women's salvation is one none of us could have paid. And it was paid one time for all and never needs to be paid again. Listen to these words, the author of Hebrews, the way that he words it in Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 28. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. 
He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Those who are waiting for him. How are we waiting? In unity. What are we waiting in? A unified hope. What has informed our waiting? A unified truth. We cannot say that we love Jesus if we do not pray for real unity. Every prayer as a price tag. Are we able to pray that God will empower us to minister to others without a commitment uh, to minister in any way we can? Are we willing to get to a place where we can really be mindful of our responsibilities when we pray? If prayer, if a prayer like this has a price tag, then unity has a price tag. Fighting, striving for real unity is hard can be tasking, but it's what it means to be holy. And Jesus empowers us to do that. So may we be a people, may we be a church, may we be a city, a country, a world that genuinely is so overtaken by God's heart that we are unified. We are unified in what it means to love him and what it means to love each other. And anything that doesn't look like that, we are unified in calling it out. We are unified in breaking that apart because God's glory means so much more to us than our comfort. God's glory means so much more to us than the things we think we know, than the things that we uh, find ourselves getting in routines. God's glory means everything. Being united and reunited means everything. Let's pray. Father, as I pray, I'm thankful that we are able to, to pray and repeat the very truth that we have learned about you that we get to uh, re- repeat and, and replay uh, things about you that we are so prone to forget. Father, I, I am praying for real unity. I pray for unity in our own hearts. I pray for unity in our own relationships. I pray for unity in our communities. God, I pray for a unity that is not self-defined. I pray for a unity that's not defined by a blog, that's not defined by a talk show, that's not defined by a political party. God, I pray for a unity that is rooted in your heart. I pray that's not even just a cliche. I pray that we live a life that is ever searching and seeking out what your heart truly is about. I pray that we are overrun with ways in which maybe our hearts aren't where yours is. And we genuinely want that to be undone. We want it to be renovated. We want it to be taken out. We want it to be redone. God, I pray for genuine heart surgery that only happens when we're yours. I pray for genuine heart surgery that only happens when we have obeyed and submitted our wills to yours. I'm praying that you indeed will come in change our hearts and remake them. Not so that we can brag, not so that we can thump our chests, but so that we then are empowered to seek out unity with our brothers and our sisters and do it in such a way that we show who you are and we show that we are longing to be reunited with you again. 
We pray these things now in your son's name, through the glory of the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This takes us to uh, what we just really walked through in this sermon. Every time we come to a place where we are uh, walking through uh, the Lord's table, when we walk through the Lord's Supper, ultimately what we're showing is where our hearts joy, where our hope is, and also what it is that unifies us. We are ultimately coming to a table saying that this picture of who Jesus is, this very real, this mysterious connection that he has in the ways that he shows us grace as we partake of these elements, this is not a small thing. This is not a, a, a little thing. This is not something we just overlook. Every time we do this, we're saying that our greatest hope right now, because look, if we're honest, we know that our hearts just aren't always unified with his. And we know that our hearts aren't always unified with each other. But if we're coming in a heart of humility, that's a part of what God requires, right? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And walking humbly, what that tells us is, I realize that my heart is far from you. I know I can look at examples this week, this, this past day, this past hour, that there are parts of my heart that have just not been lockstep with yours. That is sin, period. That is sin. It's not just an emotional disagreement. It's sin. And on, some, on many levels, that needs to be reworked in me. And so I'm coming with a humble heart that is asking for genuine forgiveness, a heart that is penitent, a heart that is repentant. And so if this is true for you, even in hearing these truths, if you're in a place where you're like, I, I believe this, and I believe exactly that Jesus is who he said he is, and I believe that is the only hope for me to be truly reunited. And I love him and I follow him and I repent for the every area, all these areas that are being exposed in my own heart. I repent of that. It's not, I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. I fall, but I'm seeing where God is calling me to repentance and I'm seeing the, the, the need to do that. Y'all, this, this is for you. This is for us. This is what it means for us to be unified. We're unified, not just in our meanfulness and our, I'm sorry, in our desire to be unified. We are unified because we're resting in one united truth. We are united in our hope that the finished work of Jesus is enough. The resurrection of Jesus is enough. We keep going back to that. That's what we keep cycling through. That's how we continue to grow. That's how we continue to be sanctified. Then this is for you. If that's not where you are, if that's just not true for you right now, Jesus wants with you what he had with his disciples. He wants genuine relationship. He wants to be truly united. You can't be truly united when one person thinks one thing and another person thinks another thing. Further, you can't be united when two people are believing the opposite things. Jesus wants true unity with you. He doesn't want conformity from you. He doesn't just want uniformity. He wants genuine unity. He wants to know you where you are and then continue to do the work of sanctification so that your heart becomes where God's is. So maybe let this time pass and pray, whether it's heard or whether it's not heard, pray, Lord, if this is true, then I pray that you would start to do a work on my heart, that you would start to bring about some of these changes in me so that I'm able then to see my real need for you. And he's, he'll do it. The scripture says he's faithful and just. He will forgive your sins. He will meet you where you are. So if that's true, and this is where we're holding, then let's unite ourselves together, even as we are separated uh, because of this pandemic, as we are separated uh, throughout the internet. Let's take this time and celebrate with great joy 
and sobriety all the ways that Jesus completes our joy, completes our hope. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal and he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. Take and drink of this. The Apostle Paul said that as often as we do this, we do this uh, in remembrance of him. We do this to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We do this because this is our way of showing the world, showing everyone this is what we trust in. This is what we're united in. This is what hopefully we're living out. And so we do this as often as we remember. If this is true, then this becomes a, a way in which we get to say, you know what? This week has been hard. This week has been rough. I can see areas where my heart has not been aligned. And this reminds me exactly where my heart should be. That is a function of God's grace. So as we receive the grace of God now, let's receive the benediction together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our savior, be glory, be majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of the united body of Jesus said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.